Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Whether they're crazy or lazy, welcome back to Watch with Jen now that we're in the hazy dog days of summer, otherwise known as late August or monsoon season as it is here in Phoenix. I am talking to you on a day when inexplicably we lost the internet last night during the final night of the Democratic National Convention. It started to hail like mad. It sounded like marbles were hitting the windows and the skylights and the atrium and the porch and everywhere near us outside. It was just insanely loud. We have very hard ground in Phoenix and you could hear everything fall. Luckily, no roof leaks this time. So far, anyway, knock on wood, we will see what next week brings, because looking at the forecast, it looks like we are in for some more rain. But right now it's dry, although I am sans internet. So I did my research for the podcast today using my cell phone, and I'm just chilling. Good thing I have like 8 million DVDs and books and CDs. So that's always good. Keep your physical media. That is the lesson for the day, I guess. But I really hope this finds you well. I know it is a crazy time right now because kids are heading back to school and it's really scary, especially because... You know, we don't know what to do right now. We definitely can't trust the administration. So it is just very scary, very stressful. And I wish everyone well, whether your children are going back to school or whether that's just in a different room of your house and they are connected to the internet, which is hopefully working and they're not in monsoon season. No, I'm just kidding. But I hope everyone is doing well. And if you're having a time right now where it isn't going great, then I hope these movies will give you something to distract you. So without further ado, I will go ahead and recommend five good ones for you to see in this week's episode. We are kicking things off this week with a remake of a 2010 film from Argentina that, if I am not butchering this, was named Rampe Cabezas. Rampe Cabezas. I think I'm saying that correctly. I hope so. I took Spanish way back in college, so it has been a while. Rampe Cabezas was directed by Natalie Smirnoff, and that was in 2010, Argentina. Eight years later, Director Mark Turtletaub remade her film as Puzzle, which was written by Oren Moverman, the great screenwriter of Married Life, I'm Not There, Jesus' Son, The Messenger, Rampart, Love and Mercy. Oren Moverman is also becoming quite the go-to guy for foreign films that are being remade. He wrote and I believe directed The Dinner. He also wrote Human Capital. Both of those were film movement titles that were both good films. 
And this is another one, an earlier one, Puzzle. You can find Puzzle right now on Star's channel. It stars one of my favorite actresses, Kelly MacDonald, the adorable Scottish actress who I think most people first saw in Trainspotting. She's been in so many good ones. She was also in a film I just adored called Two Family House that I encourage you to seek out. And in this film, she stars with the late, great Indian actor Irfan Khan in his last American role before he passed away. The film finds Kelly MacDonald playing Agnes, a soft-spoken wife and mother who takes care of everything and everyone in sight and always neglects herself or thinks of herself last. This even happens on her birthday. She is responsible for the party. She's cleaning everything, entertaining guests, putting the candles on her own cake that she made herself. There is an opening sequence that pretty much establishes who she is and the type of woman she is. And it's very, very old-fashioned because it doesn't take, like, any cheap avenues to announce this to us. There's no signposting, none of this, like she's in a conversation with someone who's just telling her her life. We see it unfold over the course of a few minutes and it's wonderfully done. She is, yes, a very loving wife and mother. Her husband works with cars. She has two sons that are grown. One, I believe, this has been a while since I've seen this, but I believe is graduating from high school when it is, uh, the film is taking place. On her birthday, she is given a puzzle and enjoys putting it together so much, she does it very quickly, that she calls the person that gave it to her and asks where she purchased it, and then travels into New York City to buy another. She sees an advertisement for somebody looking for a puzzle partner and follows up to meet Robert, played by Irfan Khan, who is a former puzzle champion. He's looking for a new partner to compete in a tournament that will be taking place, I think it was the next month. The two strike up an unlikely friendship. They both bond over puzzles, of course, but then realize they have much in common as well. There is kind of that thing in movies where you can sense a romantic connection growing or what, you know, therapists might call like an emotional affair, that kind of thing. The two do depend on each other and lean on each other. And that does lead her to question her status in life, what she is doing and what is making her really happy and what is not. So it actually, even though he is seen as the so-called other man, it's really a film about a woman coming into her own and I love seeing Kelly McDonald in these types of roles. And I found the film really gentle, really sweet. And overall, it's just a total breath of fresh air. So I cannot recommend Puzzle enough. Like I said, you can find it on Star's channel. Director Mark Turtletom is a filmmaker, but he's also probably most known for being a producer 
when I tell you some of the films he's produced, I think that will maybe make you even more excited about Puzzle because it shows a very strong artistic sensibility and just an interest in films that are about empathy, compassion, and humanity. He produced movies like The Farewell, Safety Not Guaranteed, which is one I recommended on this show, Little Miss Sunshine, and also Everything is Illuminated, among many others. So if you enjoyed those films, you really should check out Puzzle. If you ask me, the only thing better than Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood in a film is a pissed-off Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood with nunchucks and throwing stars in a film. And that is precisely what you get in I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which is a 2017 film made by writer-director Macon Blair that is available on Netflix. Macon Blair is an actor, screenwriter, director kind of a man of many talents, who I think I first saw in Blue Ruin, giving just a tremendous performance as a man seeking revenge. If you haven't seen Blue Ruin, by the way, do check that one out. It is just phenomenal. Anyway, he went on to star in more independent films and then made his own here with I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. The title comes from an old gospel song that was made very popular by country singers Carter Family and Woody Guthrie. It is one that I watched in 2017 and I remember really enjoying, but then decided when I was looking at titles to share with you this week. I saw it again on Netflix and decided to go ahead and push play. It is the last thing I watched this morning before the internet completely went out, so I'm glad that the internet gods waited until I finished it in order to get prepared for today's podcast. It's a film that I think you're really going to want to watch right now, especially because In it, Melanie Linsky plays a nice, decent, hardworking woman who is just having a string of bad luck. But even more than that, she's starting to realize just how many jerks there are in the world. And we see that through her eyes. At the beginning of the film, she's in her car, she hears on the radio about an incident like a mass shooting involving a legally purchased AR-15, as if that makes it better. And then she goes to her job, working in a medical facility, taking care of an elderly patient, and hears this woman just unleash a racist tirade before she dies, essentially, and then has to pretend that she didn't hear this horrible stuff being said as the woman's last words. She goes to a bar later, and somebody just completely spoils a big twist in the book she was reading, and then goes home and finds that her home has been ransacked. She's been robbed. Of course, she calls the police, and they pretty much come. They take inventory. You know, if you've had anything like this happen before, they write a report, and 
that's basically the end of it, unless there's some obvious clue. That's about it. And the police kind of insinuate that, you know, it was probably her fault. Maybe she didn't lock the door. And she should really think about her home security, that kind of thing, as if she is just automatically responsible for getting robbed. So she is having a week, let's say, and she just begins to feel like, to quote Linsky, everyone is an asshole. And she is tired of it. Mad as hell, not going to take it anymore. When she returns home, she spent the night at her sister's, I believe. Uh, she discovers that someone just keeps letting their dog poop on her yard. And she even has a sign up uh, with a picture indicating, you know, please don't do that. And sees a man walking away with his dog and uh, actually cleans up the stool on her yard, throws it at him, you know, and the man turns around. It is Elijah Wood, who is her neighbor. He actually picks up the excrement that she hurled his way and seems somewhat apologetic, but he just basically says, like, it's fine. He doesn't apologize. Until later, when she decides that that kind of felt good to actually confront someone and goes and starts asking her neighbors if they saw anything. Uh, she finds like a footprint by her fence, gets a plaster of Paris, decides she's going to basically just start her own one woman investigation. So after she asks her neighbors, she starts going around the neighborhood and Sure enough, she crosses paths with Elijah Wood once again, who thinks she's there because the dog actually, the two strike up a tentative, interesting friendship as he is just as outraged as she is that she was robbed and, you know, becomes her backup when they actually do get some action on who might have been a perpetrator behind this crime and decide to follow up. It is a darkly comedic thriller. It kind of goes from a character piece into some darkly funny territory and then becomes pretty shocking in places. So it is a very hard to pinpoint, hard to pin down film from a genre perspective, which I honestly love. I kind of enjoy that when they don't just follow protracted path from start to finish. Like this movie is its own thing. There's pathos, there's anger, there's some really interesting turns. And I think it's very entertaining. It won't be for everyone. I'm going to say that right now. It is definitely not for everyone or those who don't like overly dark material. Not that it gets like so dark, but it does go into a more intense place by the end of the film. But I think if, you know, you can handle the Coens, other filmmakers like that, I think you will really enjoy I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which again is available on Netflix. Our third and fourth film have a common theme. My patron, Jacob Rivera, suggested 
a bunch of different themes for this month as part of his reward for being a patron on the right stuff level where he can suggest different topics and I choose one to either do an episode or a segment about and looking over these I was very intrigued by one he suggested that was for movies about music that aren't documentaries And at first, I was going to do an entire episode on movies about music. But as I started to make a list of all the great movies about music, and then wound up in biopic territory and all these other films that I wanted to include that were just of all genres and all types, it was getting so out of hand that I thought, why blow it and just, like, make it an essential list of these movies when, watch, I'll share, like, 20, but there's probably 30 other ones I could have shared as well. And I thought, no, I would rather spread those out over this podcast, recommend a few here and there, and figured I would share two different ones today to form this segment before I wrap it up with just another recommendation that I had in my pocket waiting to share with you. So our two music movies, I am going to start with one from 2009 called Pirate Radio. At least that's what it was named in the United States. But overseas, pretty much everywhere else, you are going to find this film listed as The Boat That Rocked. So if you can't find it as Pirate Radio, do look for The Boat That Rocked. It was a 2009 film. It is available on the Peacock channel, which I honestly have not checked out. I do apologize. I'm sure it probably has ads, but I hope that it isn't edited. I don't really know how this channel works. So I'm just saying it's there. It should also be available to rent as well on various streaming retailers, provided, of course, that your internet is working. But do look for it. It was written and directed by Richard Curtis, as in the legendary British screenwriter who did Four Weddings and a Funeral. He was also... Responsible for Notting Hill, Bridget Jones Diary, Love Actually. He's also a filmmaker and directed some of those films. And this one, he both wrote and directed. It is kind of loosely based on fact. In the 1960s, it was against policy to play rock and roll music in England on the radio stations there. But... They got around this because, as any music lovers know, the 1960s was like the greatest era of British music ever. And to get around it, radio stations started popping up in international waters on these big boats. And they were so-called pirate radio ships. And In the water, they would play rock and roll music 24 hours a day. The movie tells the story of a fictional pirate radio station called Radio Rock, set in 1966. 
it introduces us to its crews of various DJs, all very charismatic and strange and just indicative of, you know, classic FM DJs who broadcast rock, R&B, and pop to the United Kingdom from a ship anchored in the North Sea. Meanwhile, of course, the British government and a severe, tireless official played by Kenneth Branagh schemes to shut this pirate ship and all like it down. So, the film stars just an incredible array of talent, including Philip Seymour Hoffman, a man I seriously think about at least once a week. I find myself marveling over a performance of his or even a line that just pops into my head or a scene. I I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he's one of those people now where, knowing what happened to him, it's kind of hard to watch him, but it's also joyous. And, you know, that even was built into his persona before, like his role in Magnolia is very, you know, pleasant and up. I mean, he played Phil, but it's also sad and heartbreaking at the same time. And yeah, he's kind of the old laughing and crying clown, sort of, or those icons of the theater. That is Philip Seymour Hoffman. And who better? And he is our main DJ, the American DJ, The Count is his DJ name. The station is run by Bill Nye, and other DJs on Radio Rock include Gorgeous Gavin, played by Reese Ifans, who most people remember very fondly from Notting Hill. Nick Frost, the film also stars Reese Darby, Catherine Parkinson, Chris O'Dowd, Jack Davenport, January Jones, Emma Thompson, Gemma Arterton... And it's mostly centered on a 17-year-old, recently expelled student, Carl, played by Tom Sturridge before he was anybody, essentially. This was an early performance. He is sent, after being expelled, by his mom to stay with his godfather, the station manager, Quentin, played by Bill Nye. And he befriends the DJs the hip, eclectic crew, and they kind of take him under their wing as he comes of age and learns the ways of life, love, and rock and roll, for better or worse, from this motley crew of guys, especially the Count, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the American who, his kind of claim to fame is, as the American, he says fuck an awful lot, and it's very, very funny. Of course, competitions arise between the men, and they have to pick their battles and air their grievances in very creative ways. The main draw of the film, besides, of course, just the phenomenal cast, the great colorful costumes, very 60s, is the fact that it has quite possibly the best soundtrack of any movie in the last 20 years. I am not even kidding. This movie is wall-to-wall great music. It helps that we're in that era of just epic British bands. But you also hear the American hits, too. 
So in the same movie, you're going to hear everything from the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, Bob Dylan, David Bowie. You hear it all in this. And immediately while I was watching the movie, I went over on the Spotify app and queued up the soundtrack for later. There are soundtrack releases for the album. I think it hit record. And I think it also hit CD. I remember looking at the CDs back in the day. I think I bought it digitally on like iTunes. This was so many years ago and many different accounts ago. Like, I don't know where it is. But luckily, somebody did put the playlist together on Spotify. So it is there. So I would recommend queuing it up. The Pirate Radio playlist or the boat that rocked. You will find it and you will fall in love with the music from this film, which is really the heartbeat of the movie. I watched it on Blu-ray and I remember originally reviewing it on Blu-ray just ages ago and it features so many deleted scenes that are hilarious. I don't know how they were able to choose what stays in and what stays out. I mean, obviously, it would kind of boil down to, do we need this? Does it change the tone of the piece? And you can find some of these deleted scenes on YouTube because they are so like legendary. There's one where they attack another pirate radio ship and, you know, just pull a bunch of pranks on them in order to bring them down because they were getting better ratings. And that one featured like James Corden and a few other people in very tiny supporting roles. So that one you can find on YouTube. You can find a lot of the deleted scenes on YouTube, but if you are able to rent the film on, hopefully the DVD has it as well, but the DVD or the Blu-ray, do check these out. I think it must have been just a blast to be able to film this because the camaraderie that you see with these actors really doesn't feel faked. And just watching some of these deleted scenes even, you can just almost tell that they were riffing off of each other and just loving being in each other's company in a way that you really can't fake. And this film, like a lot of the British ensemble comedies, is more just about putting you in a good mood than anything else. So if you want just something that is going to make you laugh and take your mind off things, but also just dazzle you with great music, you need to check out Pirate Radio or The Boat That Rocked. Continuing on with our musical theme, the fourth film is a Dickensian fairy tale, kind of like Oliver Twist through music. It is August Rush, which came out in 2007. It is now playing on HBO Max. HBO Max, that is, if it, you have access to it, because it's one of those crazy streaming app launches where they kicked off the service, got rid of HBO Go, HBO Now, and gave people like little access to HBO Max. It's not available on Roku, it's not available on Fire. So, if you have HBO Max, look 
for August Rush, especially if you're looking for a music-themed film that you can show to your whole family, because this is the one for you. It stars Carrie Russell, Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, Robin Williams, Terrence Howard, and Freddie Highmore. The film is directed by Kirsten Sheridan, the Irish filmmaker. This is her big crossover film. Was an Academy Award nominee for writing the film In America with her father, Jim Sheridan, the great filmmaker, and her sister, Naomi Sheridan, as well. The screenplay for August Rush was written by Nick Castle, the man who played Michael Myers in Halloween and then became a screenwriter and director in his own right, and also was written by James V. Hahn, who adapted Dracula and Frankenstein. It was based on a story by Paul Castro and Nick Castle. The film centers on an 11-year-old musical prodigy played by Freddie Highmore, who is living in an orphanage. He runs away to New York City to find out who he is, all while his mom is searching for him and his biological dad is searching for his mom. How this all came to be, of course, started in 1995. As we learn, Lila Carrie Russell is a cellist studying at Juilliard. She is under the wing of her father, who's extremely strict. Lewis, played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, is the lead singer of an up-and-coming Irish rock band. The two meet, they have a one-night stand, and lose touch. She later finds out she is pregnant. Their father is intense and old-fashioned. And they argue she has an accident, and the father gives the baby away while she is still recovering from this accident because she was sent into premature labor from this incident. Of course, when she finds out, she is furious. We cut to 11 years later as he runs away from the orphanage. He becomes a street performer, a busker, and looks for his family and finds out who he is. He's one of those amazing children, and I had a friend like this who could just basically pick up an instrument and start playing, and he discovers this after he runs away. It is a beautiful film. It is a definite fairy tale, but there are those Dickensian touches. It does give off a feeling of Oliver Twist little David Copperfield, and it's really lovely. It was a big crowd pleaser. I remember when I saw this at the press screening, this was, whoa, back in 2007, it was one of the films that they kept showing various audiences. The only other film I remember them doing this for was School of Rock, where the crowd loved it so much, it was almost in demand, and then they did another press screening in a different area of the valley here in Arizona and another press screening and that kind of thing. I went to that one, I think, two times at least. I brought like different people. August Rush was the same thing where I remember screenings for this popping up multiple times before the film was actually released. 
And it is one that was acclaimed when it came out, but then it kind of just faded into the background. Carrie Russell became far more well-known, of course, for going on The Americans, and Terrence Howard, of course, for Empire, when that was like the biggest thing. But you can't forget about this one, and... Because it is one of those that I think did get overlooked, I wanted to call it back to your attention and encourage everyone to look for August Rush, especially if they are looking for a nice family film to entertain on a late summer night, because I think it is perfect for that. Moving on from our fun little foray into musical films... I am pulling out of my hat a favorite of mine. If you follow me on Twitter, this is one of those movies I will talk about endlessly or just introduce in a conversation with little prompting. And it's also one that I sort of always couple with my other favorite modern day romantic comedy, Happy Accidents. So if I say the two romantic comedies I talk about the most, Happy Accidents and Blank. Well, if you follow me, you probably already know I'm going to say Ira and Abby, which came out in 2006. This one is not streaming on any of the services for subscription. You will have to rent this. It is streaming like on Voodoo and Amazon and those kinds of places, but you will have to rent the film. But I encourage you to do so. It is a true joy. It was directed by Robert Carey and written by Jennifer Westfeld. Jennifer Westfeld wrote Kissing Jessica Stein, or I should say co-wrote that. She also, after this, made the film Friends with Kids, which was very funny as well. But Ira and Abby is my absolute favorite. This one is a little bit less cynical than uh, Friends with Kids, I should say. And I just cherish it so much. It stars Jennifer Westfeld and Chris Messina. And in addition to Jennifer Westfeld and Chris Messina, it co-stars Fred Willard, the late, great, wonderfully funny Fred Willard. Francis Conroy, Jason Alexander, Robert Klein, Judith Light, and Jennifer Westfeld's former boyfriend of many, many, many years before he was super famous, Mr. John Hamm, has a very small role in this film. The movie centers on Ira and Abby, of course, everyone can predict that, but to be more specific... Messina's Ira Black is a 33-year-old psychology PhD candidate with therapist parents. He is extremely cerebral, extremely indecisive. He has been in an on-again, off-again relationship with his girlfriend Leah for like nine years. And after being in a relationship with his shrink as a doctor and patient for 12 years, his shrink finally basically fires him and says, you know, he is not helping him. He wants Ira to be more spontaneous, finish his dissertation finally, and try new things. After this occurs, we do see what the therapist was talking about. 
Ira is even so indecisive, he has trouble choosing what to order at a restaurant. And he spontaneously does decide to go to a gym he sees to make an appointment for a tour, sits and waits for 45 minutes for the gym tour guide to arrive. And that is Abby, played by the adorable Jennifer Westfeld. She leads him through the gym, offers advice to both Ira and all the other clients of the gym that we realize she knows very well. She's kind of sort of an unlicensed therapist and a shoulder to lean on. And while she is walking him through this gym, she talks him out of joining it, which is hilarious. He even kind of corners her like, don't you work on commission? Like, what are you doing? But the two really do hit it off. And they sit in one of the rooms, I believe it's like the yoga room, and talk for like six hours. They really do enjoy chatting so much that at the end of this conversation, she asks him to marry her just off the top of her head. Like, will you marry me? And he thinks she's joking. And of course, you know, is taken aback. Like, what are you doing? But he's at this point in his life where nothing is really working for him. He's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. And here's this beautiful, vivacious woman kind of throwing him a life raft And so he decides, yeah, why not? So they get engaged and things go extremely well for the beginning of their engagement. Everything is great. The two are so happy. And basically, you can kind of tell they are falling totally in love. Then, of course, they get married and things get a little bit more serious because we start seeing what it is that maybe brought Abby to this place in her life. And his tendency to overanalyze everything starts to rear its ugly head. So it's sort of one of those everything was great until they got married movies, but like magnified. And it's very funny. Their parents and their parents' issues are kind of aired as the parents meet one another and spark a little bit as well in one instance, or shock each other in another. So all the different therapists get involved. It is just a very New York comedy, but a very funny, funny one. It's also kind of just a movie you would say like a sunny movie if you need to be uplifted Ira and Abby is a great one. I find it's really a good one to watch when I'm not feeling well or I just am in the mood for a smile. This is a great movie for that. And because we are kind of at that point of summer where things are getting a little bit more serious and scary as we're questioning, you know, what to do with our children or worrying about other people in our life that are maybe back in the public eye a little more. I just thought we all needed some charm and that is precisely what you find in Ira and Abby. So I do encourage you to, again, you'll have to, but rent this one or if it's cheaper or you find it in a DVD bin or on eBay or something, pick it up because it is one of my favorites and I hope you will at least give it a try, and I really do hope that it makes you laugh. 
So I want to thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Watch with Jen. Just to recap, once again, I started out with recommending Puzzle to you, the 2018 film from Mark Turtletop, which you can find on Star's channel or available for rent. I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, the 2017 film from Macon Blair, is available on Netflix right now. Pirate Radio, also known as The Boat That Rocked, if you're anywhere but the U.S., is currently on the Peacock channel. 2009 film should also be available for rent from writer-director Richard Curtis. The lovely Dickensian musical fairy tale August Rush from 2007 and director Kirsten Sheridan is now playing on HBO Max. And Ira and Abby from writer Jennifer Westfeltz and director Robert Carey from 2006 is available for rent. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Do stay tuned. There are more conversations that are going to be uploaded soon for the episodes of Watch with Jen and Friends. The latest one that I did was with Brian Tallarico, the editor of RogerEbert.com. I've also recorded a handful and have brought back two guests that you heard very early on, including one from the very first episode that I'm recording with next week. So I will be uploading these over the coming weeks, and I hope you enjoy them. Again, you can find me at Film Intuition, or Watch With Jen now has an official Twitter account at Watch With Jen. So do take care of yourself. Keep that internet working. Stay out of the way of monsoons. And I will check back in with you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen.